This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book has an unusual title. The title, Mommy. Was Grandpa a Nazi? And my author who joins me from Florida is Elizabeth Falcone. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. You have a background as an educator. This book also is an education book to some degree. Describe it for my listeners. Well, the book um, has the question, uh, was Mommy was Grandpa a Nazi? And it is answered in the book. Hmm. Um, the question, the, the reason I wrote the book was because my daughter had asked me that while she was taking the Holocaust um, studies at school, and then uh, 30 years later, as I was teaching, one of my students asked me, why are the Germans so awful? Because mm. they had been studying the Holocaust in school. And that prompted me to write the book. I felt I had to write something to explain that not all Germans are awful. Sure. And I also have wanted to explain that my father, my father was indeed not a Nazi. But um, I also found that when the student asked me the question, it was a stereotype. And a fifth grader using a stereotype is, you know, that's, that's common. Kids learn from at home what, how to look at other people. So I felt... Um, I ought to write this book, and then I realized in my own experience that so often I had become acquainted with other people over food by sharing a meal, and uh, found that when you sit down to eat with people, you talk about the food, what's in the food, what the ingredients are, and then you find out a bit about each other. So I thought that was a good way to get to know other people, and I thought I'd combine it with um, my family history and other people's histories of um, encounters with prejudice. Wonderful. You, you. just for clarification for my listeners, you have uh, German in your history. I mean, that, that your family was uh, Germanic in its uh, origins. Uh, yes. They go back um, maybe how many centuries, perhaps? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Well, <laughs> or was it that probably long? Probably as long as it's for the Neanderthal. Yes, back, <laughs> go all a, the long, way back. a long time. And, and one of the misconceptions and, and one of the things you address in this, that the, the term Nazi, I'm sure many people equate that with German ancestry and Germany in specific, but it doesn't go back hundreds of years, does it? I mean, back in the, no. uh, the 1800s, uh, there was a, a well-known author, Heinrich Hoffmann, who wrote a, a book that actually uh, degrades uh, the idea of bigotry. And and uh, and is is written uh, to counteract that in his uh, in his environment, correct? Yes, it's a children's education book about consequences. When you play with matches, you might set yourself or the house on fire. And when you tease a, a dark-colored children, you might end up in the inkwell. Interesting. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yes, it's amazing. An amazing, amazing uh, story. But um, it was circulated it was in every household during the world war during the nazi era which is also amazing it, that is amazing and and the story itself um is unique because in germany people of color were not that prevalent uh, back when it was written no i never i saw one uh black person i was in the middle in the military and stuttgart when i was on the train on the um, tram to go to school 
first one that was in 56, 57, I was already, um, you know, 12 years old. So that was the first time I saw a, a person of other color. Phenomenal. Your book, you mentioned you have recipes or have uh, at least approached the idea of food in your book. What do you think people will find interesting about your book besides the uh, the personal history that's shared? Well, besides the personal history, I I asked I asked friends of mine and family to contribute to the book with their stories where they encountered prejudice, and one of the common threads throughout their stories was um, that they came together with other people of other religions or other ethnic background over a meal or by sharing recipes or sharing food. So my recipes go back to the person who told me the story and what they served me or what they were served by others that kind of created a bond and uh, you know an awakening and a realization that we all love food. We're all similar in that mm-hmm. respect. We all love food and we love to present it and give it and give of ourselves to others through the food. You mentioned also another book that was discovered during your research or planning this book called uh, Gita's Diary. Share with my listeners a little of that story. Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, my mother, my, my, well, it goes back to my grandfather, who was a Nazi for about six months. He joined up because everybody was unemployed. He was unemployed. So he thought, oh, this is a great party. They'll give us jobs. So at uh, Kristallnacht, Crystal Night, where they bashed in all the, they were ordered to bash in all the Jewish shops, mm. he refused because these people were his clients. He had a truck, and he made deliveries for them. So when he refused, the Nazis came two days later, picked him up, sent him off to a labor camp, hard labor, one year of hard labor because he refused. Wow. And because my mo- grandmother was alone with three children, she had to make a living. So she fed these wharfed, the workers who were working at the wharf in Kiel. And one of the co-workers, my mom's co-workers, had cousins that had come from Poland to Berlin because the Germans had invaded Poland and the parents sent them to Berlin to their grandmother. Well, when they found out that my grandmother needed work, a help, they came to help my grandmother with the cooking and the babysitting. They were a nanny and a cook, Gita and her sister. And, you know, they were Polish, but they had German uh, ancestry. But they spoke German, they were Polish, and nobody asked any questions, you know. Who cared? Phenomenal, uh, interesting history. You, you, ha- you not only uh, deal with the past, but you also deal with the present. And in your book, you also uh, share a story about, or titled, or, or maybe, maybe the best way to describe it, it's called The Axe Marks the Spot. Right. What is, right. That, what is that encounter? Well, actually, that is very interesting because um, Aix-en-Provence in in southern France is where this art institute is that I attended with a friend, Paul. Paul was also a student, and he told me this story that he went to uh, a restaurant, a Lebanese-owned restaurant, a Lebanese owner. He was an artist, wanted to paint a portrait of the daughter, and she she was beautiful, beautiful uh, Mediterranean beauty. But she was engaged to an Irishman the mm-hmm. chef, the mm-hmm. pastry chef at the restaurant. Well, Paul hailed from Brooklyn, and, in, in his, and his mother was um, Catholic, his father was Muslim, 
and they lived, they had also come from Lebanon, they lived in Brooklyn, and when he was growing up, he had learned about the prejudice against the Irish. The Irish and the Germans hung out together, these blonde, blue-eyed, fair-haired people, fair-skinned people, and he had learned to become prejudiced against them and feel superior to them. Hmm. Well, this was all inside of him as he met this uh, beautiful uh, daughter of the, the owner, who was also Muslim, and um, the chef, uh, he, he couldn't help himself. He, was, he felt uh, prejudiced against him. He felt angry. Then it turns out that the chef reveals to Paul that his brother is a priest in a high school where Paul used to go to school. Oh, wow. So all of his, and he just, oh, and he serves him this delicious Irish cream, this delicious <laughs> dessert. And Paul, every, t- every bite he takes, his, his uh, prejudices melt away, and he, he can't help himself, and he ends up adoring um, the Ryan, Ryan, the chef. Phenomenal. Who is getting ready to marry this gorgeous uh, daughter. And uh, the, the, the sad part about it is that the Lebanese owner told Paul, we couldn't name our restaurant uh, Le Petit Sidon, which was the little named after the town that his uh, the wife was uh, born in. They had to just put restaurant because the local people, the city council, didn't want any uh, Leban- Lebanese uh, restaurants in the neighborhood. Incredible. Now that, oh, yeah. Would you say the underlying uh, story or theme or or advice that your book gives is learn some good recipes and invite some uh, people you don't like over for dinner? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And don't hesitate to go to somebody's house that you're not, you know, you know maybe outside of your comfort zone or color. You know, don't hesitate to go or follow an invitation, accept an invitation. Eat the food. Eat the food and enjoy the fellowship. <laughs> right. Your family, when did it migrate to the United States or immigrate to the United States? And uh, how, it, was their, uh, how was their journey through World War II in Europe? Well, let's go back to World War II. I was born during a bombing raid, literally, in the basement because they, they couldn't deliver me in the, in the top floor hmm. and in Berlin. So during a bombing raid... I was born, and my mother had to flee a week later because when she went home to her apartment, it had been bombed out. So she had to flee on one of the last trains leaving Berlin. This was March 45. Leaving Berlin, that was still open. Everything else was closed up, and the Russians were coming in from the southeast. And all that time, my father was on the Russian front. I mean, he hated Hitler. He had to listen to his speeches in Berlin when he was growing up. He couldn't stand them. But he was drafted. He was drafted to, to fight the war for, you know, against the Russians. And then um, we all moved down to the south of Germany and um, then immigrated in 1959 to Kentucky, to Lexington, Kentucky. Lexington. Amazing. Yeah. You have mm-hmm. also, uh, under Gita's diary, it really was a diary, day by day, almost account of what was happening yeah. during that time period. Period. How would you yeah. describe to my listeners uh, the overview of your book, Mommy Was Grandpa a Nazi? Uh, the overview, well, it, it contains a personal history as well as capsules, capsule capsules of other people's history because of their background, what they encountered when they 
uh, reveal their, you know, ethnic background and religion and how and how you overcome all that because you're looking for similarities. When you start looking for similarities, um, our family has found it here in America. Uh, being immigrants, we'd look for similarities and deal with the rest of it that that's not so comfortable, but we look for similarities. And that's what's important, I think, in the whole book. It is. You have also the the, the style of writing. You have uh, basically, have you recreated conversations in your book, or was it uh, all fictional, the, the conversations that are, are recounted here, or how would you how would you say your style was in uh, sharing those stories? Well, it's based on nonfiction. I mean, it's non. It's based on real history and real stories. The details <laughs> of each dialogue cannot yes. possibly be. You know, I couldn't possibly recreate every word. Right. But I took the gist. I took the gist um, of what was going on. The the feelings that were uh, shared. The the, the the location. You know, uh, one of one of the stories. The uh, the for, uh, enemy forces stories is when I was at this marvelous 4th of July party that the French uh, city citizens gave us. Well, there was some lightheartedness there and uh, uh, fun, but also this uh, r- memory of World War II that the mayor talked about. So that was serious. I don't uh, didn't uh, quote his speech, but it's, it's uh, basically what happened, and I provide the dialogue that leads through the story that keeps the story going and so much of it is in clear in my memory or it was clear in the memory of the people who told me their story uh recipes gooseberry raspberry pie i'm uh, hungry for dessert <laughs> as you uh, as we speak this morning you have uh, have done a, a, an all-encompassing book it's a little bit narrative a little bit historical it's a little bit uh, insight into family history a little bit of everything for uh the reader 224 pages how long did it take to complete this uh, elizabeth well as soon as i retired it I started, it took five years. Five years. Have you yeah. enjoyed the uh, journey enough that you may have a follow-up book in the near future? Oh, no. I don't know. I'm 70 years old, and the one thing I had to do after the, I finished the, the English, I, I translated it into German. Oh, my. So I, finished, I just finished the translation, and that was a journey. And I'm, I'm telling you right now, it is a journey. When you're writing the book, it's a journey talking to people about their experiences, putting it down, and, and having fun with it. You know, some people ask me, well, are you going to make a lot of money? And I said, you know what? It doesn't matter. The, writing the book and talking to all these people, including the, the uh, uh, publisher, the people at the publishing house, has been such an exquisite journey. And a revelation. Every time I turn around and I and I give the book away, I usually am giving the book away. People, oh yeah, oh yeah, I had that happen to me. Oh yeah, 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 that that happened to me. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I love to cook, you know. So mm. that's the journey. Okay, you know that's important. Meeting people. Absolutely. Congratulations on completing this. The title again is "Mommy Was Grandpa a Nazi." The author Elizabeth Falcone. Where can my listeners get a copy of your book, Elizabeth? At Amazon or Barnes and Noble. 
and their local bookseller if they ask and for the it by name. Bookseller, exactly. Phenomenal. Exactly. Okay. Elizabeth, now do you have a website developed yet? Yes, I do, and the the website's called Mommy with Grandpa Nazi. www.mommywithgrandpaanazi.com. And people can get in touch with you there, and also maybe hear this interview again if they yes. choose. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. I'm also on Facebook. <laughs> Good. And how can they reach you? How can they reach you on Facebook? Do you have a fan page there? Yes, I do, and it's just going Elizabeth Falcone. Excellent. Let me spell your last name for my listeners who may be challenged like I can be at times. F-A-L-C-O-N-E. And, uh, and Elizabeth is with an S. With an it's S. The German, German the ch- the German, spelling. The German spelling, yes. Elizabeth. Yes. Elizabeth. Uh-huh. E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H. Yes. Thank you for joining me today. Okay. Thank you for sharing your story and, and also the journey of completing this book. I will look forward to possibly... Maybe there'll be a cookbook in the future. Who knows? We, we look forward to visiting okay. with you again. Thanks again for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. For, pleasure. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Left Behind Bars, and the author is Terry the God, and Terry joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Terry. How's it going, Steve? How you feeling today? Doing great. Great to have you on the show. This book, Left Behind Bars, you're going to take us into the south side of Chicago where you were raised. It is fictional, but much of the book is, would you say, comes from uh, personal experiences living on the south side called Englewood? It definitely, it definitely comes from personal experiences, you know, and environment I came up in, which is, like you say, Inglewood, Chicago. They call it Chirac. As you see on the front cover of my book, it says Chirac, left behind bar, Chirac. Well, in that little community, that neighborhood is one of the dangerous places in the state of Illinois. That's a fact. That's definitely a fact. So you were raised in a community where people were being murdered every day? Yeah, Steve, this is this is a daily occurrence you know that happens here you know it's nothing to glorify or, or brag about but this is this is the environment i grew up in and these are the things i saw these were the things i had to deal with on a daily basis 
and it was what it was. So a lot of gangs, uh, kids being involved at a very young age? Very young age. As young as nine years old. You will see a nine-year-old little boy running around throwing up gang signs with a gun. So how would you rate your book like a movie rating? Would you call it a PG-13, or is it R-rated? It would definitely be R-rated. Okay. It would definitely be R-rated. So you're not pulling any punches here. You're going to tell it like it is, what went on day-to-day, and and through the eyes of some fictional characters. Uh, Tell Mm -hmm. us about some of the main characters and why you chose them. Were they patterned after anyone you knew? Sort of, sort of. They definitely were. They definitely were in, in the light of others that I know. So give us the main character. Who is that? Well, the main character is a young guy named Mitch, you know, but then between in the book, as it goes on, he he, he would be nicknamed Killer, and then you have the other main character, Murder Rich. Those are pretty much the two main, main characters in the book. How old are they? Well, Mitch, he's a young teenager, and Murder Rich is an adult in his, like, late 20s. And so I guess he got his nickname for precisely that, murdering a lot of people? Well, not specifically murdering a lot of people, but he have done those types of things. Well, they kind of team up, don't they? Why do they team up? Because, see, Steve, where I'm from, you always have, like, the older guy, when he sees what you would probably call his fresh meat come around, which is the innocent, which Mitch was innocent when he first came around, and you had this older guy who's been in the streets and involved in murders. He'd been in jail for murder and other things like that. He see a young guy kind of naive, fresh without any background he looks for him to do pretty much his dirty work the things he can't do without getting a whole bunch of jail time for whereas if he picked this younger guy who doesn't have a criminal record or anything and he's he'd get a slap on the wrist so their main thing every day is would you say just to stay alive just to stay alive just to make money and feed whoever their loved ones is. That's pretty much what it is. So it's all about violence, but at the same time, it's all about relationships. It's definitely about relationships as well. You know, in day-to-day life, you know that, that, because you know, a person that that comes up in these these environments, you know, Steve, they, we, per to speak, came up with dreams just like the regular average kid, you know, until those dreams were turned into nightmares by the the corruptness of the streets and things that goes on out there, you know. And, like, you could say, like, you know, why a lot of people didn't turn and go the other way because especially if you got a single, you living in a single-parent household, your mother, she's going to work before you go to school. So when you leave out your house and you're going on to school, you got to encounter these guys. So it's either you going to be accepted or you're going to take whatever punishment they willing they want to give you. you got to live by their rules. Did you ever have any close 
calls where you could have been shot and killed? To be honest with you, Steve, I have been shot. I have been shot, Steve. You know, and it is what it is. And right. I was a juvenile when it happened, you know, so I was a kid. So the- I was shot up badly. You know, I still have a bullet in me. To this day, I have steel and rods in my arm and things like that, you know, so, yeah. So your book is not an exaggeration just for fiction's sake? No, it's definitely not an exaggeration for fictional sake. It's telling you, it's giving you, it's giving the people who want to know about what really goes on out there, who are probably too scared to go out there, it lets you walk right through it from a safe place, which is your living room. So did you see family and friends shot and killed? All the time. All the time. It's not, it's, I don't think it's not, it's not one day, Steve, that goes by, and that's to this day, that, Someone in Inglewood, Chicago, the South Side, is not shot or killed. Multiple people. So it affects a lot of people. Those those uh, killings are affecting a lot of folks, families and friends. Yes, it does. It definitely does. And, and that's, a, that's a hard thing to digest. You know, it's a hard thing to digest especially if you're trying to do good and and someone comes along and, and they shoot your brother or your mother or your niece. Innocent people get killed all the time, Steve. So it, it's, it's kind of, it's very hard. You know, you see that, that guy that tried to do so good turn into the type of a guy you hate so much, that the system hates so much. And to them, he becomes an animal, you know, and the first thing is lock him away for life, you know. And a lot of this going on because of just pure vengeance. Pretty much. A lot of it is definitely about vengeance, and then vengeance about money, because money is definitely a big part of living you know especially in a in a neighborhood where there's not much money yet you know so you're scrapping to get the the little money that is there so so people who have those dreams if they're trying to live out those dreams and someone's taking that dream away from them it's easy for the mind to become violent when you're growing up in that type of neighborhood Tell us like ab- you might. Go ahead, Steve. Tell us about some of the female characters in the book. Well, some of the female characters like Latavia, Chantel, Teray, uh, those like uh, were the women that was in these guys' lives. You know what I mean? And so they were around to, you know, see these things as well by dealing with these type of guys because a lot of the women that come up from where I'm from, you know, they see the glamour and the gliss 
and you know that that's an immense thing to them, you know, and it's easy for a guy who's who's got the stuff to show to tell a woman that they could give them the world when they actually can see that this guy got the world, you know, versus someone telling them, oh, you just need to stay doing this and going to school and you can get it. You know, where this guy, he's throwing these women a couple hundred dollars, a few thousand dollars, taking them shopping, buying them everything they couldn't ever afford. You know, these women become loyal to these men, you know, and they're willing to hold those secrets and do things that they wouldn't normally do. So your book is filled with, as you put it, chills up the spine, murders, and sexual encounters. It definitely is. And when you read it, you will definitely, my my visual or my writing is so clear. So it's like when you're when you're reading these things, you're you can't help but see them. You can't help but see them. So it's literally nonstop action, the whole book, from start to finish. Life in Englewood, Chicago, the South Side. What was the most challenging part of writing your book? Um, the most challenging part of writing the book, Steve, I'm not going to lie, was probably the sexual encounters because I wasn't too good at writing, like, visual sexual encounters, you know, but my lady, Laura, she was telling me you need to, you know, be more open. You need to project yourself more to the moment and, you know, be more passionate about it, you know, and I had another guy who I gave acknowledgments in my book as well. He goes by incredible. It's one of my white friends that I'm proud to say, one of my white friends. And, and he told me, like, yeah, you need to project yourself to those moments and, and detail it, detail it, and live through that moment on paper. And so when I did that, I became great at it. So my readers say. And this book take, took place uh, in relatively uh, uh, close time to uh, 2015. When, what are the uh, years you're looking at here? Um, the years through there is uh, between 2002 and 2008. Right in there, like the beginning of 2009, so to speak. So that's where part two kind of starts at in like 2009. Because it's a trilogy, Steve, and, and I can, and part one right there, I give you a preview of part two. A trilogy, and it's going to all three will be titled "Left Behind Bars" with another uh, subtitle. Yeah, yeah, but it'll have more to it. Well, thank you, Terry, for joining us on Author Talk. Tell us the best way to get your book. The best way to get my book is at authorhouse.com, or you can either go to Amazon or Barnes and Nobles online. I got it; in, it's an ebook. You know, look up Terry the God Left Behind Bars, and there you go. You have, and it's a it's a great read, and it's very truthful. It's a lot of great things that you can learn and help you understand about people that come from this culture. Thank you so much for joining us on Author Talk. Appreciate you having me, Steve. You have a great one. You're listening to Author Talk.
We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled, Living Like a Lady, When You Have Cancer. And my author, Donna A. Heckler, joins me from the St. Louis area in the United States. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Jay. Pleasure to talk with you. Your book is obviously a personal account of... Uh, a stressful time that you went through, 241 pages. How long ago was this encounter? And tell my listeners why you decided that Living Like a Lady was a good title. Absolutely. So the book was actually written um, about uh, five years ago as well as about two years ago. I was diagnosed five years ago and went through cancer and at that time kept the blog. But about two years ago, I realized that I didn't really want it to be the Donna story. I wanted to be able to share tips and tricks that would help all women get through cancer and cancer treatment and live as radiantly as possible. As I reflected on the blog, so many times something would happen and I'd, I'd say, oh my gosh, that's so unladylike. Hmm. And, and that is sort of the genesis of the title. So I wanted to be able to live as ladylike as possibly and be as radiant as I could, despite what was going on. So when I wrote the book, I actually interviewed a number of other patients and doctors and medical advisors, all looking for the same thing. What are the tips and tricks so that we can get through this treatment as as beautifully and radiantly um, and as confidently as possible. Uh, Donna, did you follow the typical protocol of uh, chemo and uh, those types of treatments? I did. I started with chemo and went through about um, six treatments of that. I also was on an immunotherapy because of the type of cancer I had. Then we went through the double mastectomy, and I finished up with the radiation. So, yes, it was a good, grueling year of treatment. Sure. And the common side effect is, or the most obvious, is hair loss. Uh, How did you cope with that, and what did you recommend to the readers of your book? Absolutely. So what we discovered is that chemo does what chemo does, and chemo kills fast-growing cells. So it kills fast-growing hair follicle cells. So you don't just lose your hair. This is one of the big things that I just didn't understand and one of the, the many reasons for the book. But it kills all the hair on you. So the hair in your arm, the hair in the legs, the hair in your nose, and that feels very unladylike. 
But the fact of the matter is, if you lose the hair in your nose, you're more susceptible to having um, infections or catching colds. And so we give you tricks on what can you do if you've lost the hair in your nose? What do you do if you've lost the hair in your eyebrows? Um, or if you've uh, lost your eyelashes? Many women lose those as well. So in the book, we spend quite a bit of time talking about not just hair loss and how to deal with that on the top of your head, but hair loss all over your entire body. Incredible. How would you approach the subject of medical care? There are many different uh, types of doctors out there. Some have differing opinions and different approaches. I have a family member that just went through a surgical procedure, and it took six weeks to get out of it. And every time a doctor came in to visit, they would change the protocol. Did you encounter any of that? I had quite a bit of that. In fact, um, it took about six surgeries for me to get all the way through my mastectomy and reconstruction, which should have been done in two, Um, but primarily because they changed the way they wanted to do this or we saw this side effect and it wasn't anticipated, and so let's make another um, shift. The challenge in the medical profession, um, which is to a large extent a very good challenge, is that there's so much new information. There's so much wonderful work being done in medicine, and the various doctors are keeping up in their specialty. But as medicine and as research is proceeding, the specialties are becoming more and more finite. So as we as patients then see that as changes in protocol or one doctor recommends one thing and another one sees something else, it's because of the nature of their specialties many times. My recommendation in the book, we talk about finding your care providers. And for me, what, what I believe is really important is that you talk to several and you find some people that you trust. Um, we identify several of the different types of doctors who will be the first ones that you'll go to Uh, when you're going through treatment, we suggest that you find one that you really trust and that you can develop a strong relationship with. And some people will say, yes, but I I need them for their medical specialty. Absolutely. But you need to be able to talk to them about everything that's going on, and you need to trust that you're getting the best care. If you have doubts, that's going to impact how you feel about your recovery and, and as a result, how you might do. Did you also explore the idea of networking with other patients or other individuals going through that? I know you mentioned a blog, so that would have opened up that door for you. What about those who are facing the concerns about cancer and other diagnoses? Absolutely. One of the things that was so helpful to me when I was first diagnosed, I was introduced to four different women, and I sat down with each of them, and they each had one unique tip or morsel or piece that I walked away with and said, wow, is that ever impactful for me? But what I realized is that as I was going through treatment, I didn't have the energy to talk to hundreds of women to get hundreds of tips. And that was in part the genesis for the book. Let me talk to a number of women. Let me capture the tips. Let me put it all in one place so that somebody else can read it, can look at it and say, oh, well, that's a good thing to know. But in addition, let's create a community. And so we have put together a website. We have a foundation. On the website, we have tips and tricks. We have an ongoing blog. We do a lot with social media. I connect with a lot of women who are going through cancer, and I try to help facilitate introductions to each other so that we can make this journey as easy as possible, but we can learn from each other so that we don't always have to fall into the same traps and have the same surprises um, crop up on uh, crop up on us. 
What is the significance of using plastic utensils? You mentioned that in your book. So that's a great one. And it's one of the little ones, right? I wanted the book to have lots of little ah ahas. When you go through chemo, very often your chemo is platinum based. Um, Mm. Most of the chemos have that as an element to it. And as a result, we often hear about that metallic taste. Yes. That you get. And to a large extent, that is from uh, the, the chemo itself. So when you go and you eat on regular metal silverware, when you already have a metallic taste in your mouth, it makes the metallic taste that much worse, and you end up not eating. In many cases, you won't eat at all. So one little trick is to eat off of plastic, because you'll no longer have an extra taste of metal, and it will make the food a little bit more palatable. And what's interesting is this is another item that I learned from other patients. In fact, the medical oncologist who who was very supportive and helpful in writing the book is also a nutritionist, and her comment was, what? Why do you eat off of plastic? And I said, Mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, you have to know this. But to me, that is exactly why we need a book like this. The doctors aren't living with this. They're not tasting the metal, so they don't necessarily know these tricks, and that's why we have the book. To share the tricks with others. It's a great tip uh, for anyone that's going through medical therapy of any type. You also have uh, mentioned, of course, the inner connection. What's important about having a PMA or positive mental attitude, and also the uh, the aspect of joy and laughter in recovery? Absolutely. I don't think I understood the importance of it as I went through the cancer as much as I understood later, and I was able to look back and recognize that the ability to laugh over some things. And, you know, these things that our bodies go through, as much as I'm trying to be a lady, sometimes they were just darn right funny. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, I'm either going to cry or I'm just going to giggle at this one. And so I chose to giggle. But it was very much in reflecting afterwards that I realized that regardless of what was going on for me every day, I wanted to start the day with a smile. I knew that going through cancer was not only hard for me, but it was hard for everybody who knew me. Um, The thing about cancer is you've got to go through it by yourself. Nobody can take that pain away. Nobody can take the chemo for you. You have to do it. So I thought if I started with a smile, that at least it would help everybody know that I was going to be okay for that day. Of course, after the smile, you throw on, you know, a lot of makeup and put on the wig, and and you hope that you can – have a great day, but I always began with a smile, and that smile, I realized, allowed me to recognize that I was still Donna, and I could still be the nice, loving person I was. It just was going to come out maybe a little bit differently because of the cancer, but it helped me recognize the importance of attitude and recognize the importance of faith and the role that God was playing in being beautiful from the inside out. Exceptional. Anything on the nutritional side that you discovered that perhaps is overlooked by the medical profession? So it would be hard to say that something is is overlooked necessarily by the medical profession because there's so much work going into nutrition. Hmm. And I wouldn't say that I'm a nutritionist by a long shot. What I would say is that I try to figure out how to get things to taste better, how to do things so that 
I would eat what was required as I was going through treatments. And I think maybe that's an area that the, the medical professionals and nutritionists don't always spend as much time on. So, for instance, if you apply sweet-tasting sauces, uh, to your protein, that can also be much more palatable when you're going through chemo than some of the, the spicy items. Mm. Um, another thing we discovered is, and, and since, you know, I discovered, but then we started talking to other patients and, and they're like, oh, of course, absolutely. Freezing things. Cold tastes a lot better to a chemo patient than warm items do. So even if you're having hot soup, you want to let it cool down a little bit and it will taste better. And the point in getting something to taste better is you'll eat a little bit more. And that's always a challenge when people go through chemo is they're just not getting enough food in them because everything does taste bad. What is the, so those are some little tips. What is the one aha moment that you had or you think the reader will have when they read your book? Or is there one? The one the one, I don't know that there was just one for me. I think the one aha that I want, well, I would hope that people have as they read the book is, wow, I'm still me. Cancer doesn't define me. And I can be a beautiful, wonderful person. I can live my life. And, and that was, to an extent, perhaps it was yaha for me, that I chose to live my life and not, not just sit and, and deal with the cancer, but I interviewed for a new job on the day I found out that I had cancer. I took that job. I traveled, and I lived my life, and I think um, that's what I want others to know that they can do as well. It's like, wow, knowing this or knowing that, I can live my life. Maybe I don't look like the same. Maybe I feel really tired. Maybe I take better care of myself or different care of myself, but I can still live, and I can live beautifully. Do you think that the advice you've given in your book is something that will be a positive impact on not only those with cancer, but those without cancer, perhaps uh, maybe having family members who might be facing that journey? I do. I do. The book has been out for a few months now, and we have been getting really some wonderful reviews on it. And we talk about, um, we measure the book in touches. I'm not measuring it necessarily in dollars, which is a little tough for a corporate executive to say. But I want to, to touch people and make a difference for them. And I have found so many people coming up to me and saying, you know, I read this chapter and I think I really understand better now what my friend is going through, what my wife is going through. Um, I think I can be a, a doctor, so I can be a better doctor because of this book. One woman called me and said, I have to tell you, I feel like I can be a complete and whole woman again because of some things I read that allowed me to make choices in my care. Um, that, to me, is what matters, and that's why we did the book. What is the follow-up to this release, Living Like a Lady? Are you planning a, um, a sequel to this, or are you just expanding on the Internet with your advice? No, 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 no. There's, there's actually several other books um, in the works, and we've had requests to write a companion book which I've begun work on called Living with the Lady When She Has Cancer, mm. and it will parallel this book, but it will be targeted directly to those caregivers. So as the woman is dealing with perhaps dry skin, the book is written in chapters, not based on, on my story necessarily, but on things that happen to you. So there could be a chapter on dry skin. Well, in the companion book, We'd like to be able to explain to the caregiver what's going on, some suggestions that they may be able to take advantage of, um, how they may be able to comfort the skin. 
um, it's some things that they should say or perhaps things that they may not want to say. So we look at putting together a companion book. I've also been asked by, quite frankly, a number of men who don't tend to talk about these things, um, the very real things that happen to you in cancer, and I've been asked if I would um, write another book for men. And, and I'm, while I'm female, and obviously it would not be called Living Like a Lady, I would love to interview a number of men and help them through this. Wonderful. This is a great topic or important topic that you've written about. Thank you for sharing your story. The title again is Living Like a Lady, subchapter or subtitle, When You Have Cancer. And my guest has been Donna A. Heckler. Donna, you mentioned a website and some other resources. How do my how do my listeners get a copy of your book and keep in touch? Absolutely, and we would love for them to keep in touch. They can find us online at www.livinglikealady.com livinglikealady.com. They can find the book in Barnes & Noble. They can find it on Amazon, of course, at Author House. They also can find it in gift shops. We are finding that it sells as a great gift for somebody who's going through cancer. So look in your local gift shops, and you can often find it there. Often many of the hospital gift shops have the book also. Um, you can also follow us on Facebook, again, livinglikealady.com. Facebook and Twitter, uh, you can follow and catch our feed. Donna, thank you for joining me today. This is an important topic, and thank you for sharing not only your story, but also helping those who are going through the journey. Thank you again. Thank you. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Parker.